Everybody good today? I, I noticed when I came in, it seemed like that more just people were happy today. And uh, then I realized that it was a bunch of MU fans with bitterness disguised as joy. I think that's what it was. I guess what it was. It's a good thing Jesus is here, all right? We all, we all need him for different reasons, different reasons. All right. Hey, before, before we go to work here today, um, I just want to uh, take a second um, swing at what Virginia mentioned a few minutes ago regarding our kids and our students. You guys understand we don't do like 14 different fundraisers during a year where you're just constantly being bombarded with that. We try to hit one time a year, one for our kids, one for our students, and that is what this is. We have arrived. So those tents out there, I'm asking you to wipe them out today. Seriously, stop by, get an envelope off the tent. It's really simple. You just put the amount that's on the envelope. We can wipe this thing out quickly and make sure that we give some kids some help to go to camp. Um, What's happening in their lives right now, that foundational stuff, so many big things happen at places like camp where they're able to get away for an extended period of time. Let's help them get there. Let's help them get there. And then our students, the auction's coming up. Um, Some of you guys can help. You may have some items that you could put in for auction. Um, Now, this is not a garage sale. All right, it's not a garage sale, but there may be some items, right? If you got a boat, we'll talk, right? If there's some stuff, seriously, you may have made some things or you may have some stuff that, that, is, um, that you would be willing to, to put into the auction. Talk to us. Talk to us about what that might look like because if there really are some bigger items, we'd like to be able to promote that so that people kind of know ahead of time um, what to be prepared to, uh, to go after. We want to be able to help our students either go on mission to either, you know, one of the places that we typically go or on mission to Fuge. And so some of those students, they're on their own in the sense that some of them attend weekly. They don't have families who are connected to Jesus or go to church. They're really on their own with a lot of that. And so what we raise at at something like the auction really goes a long way toward helping them. Um, I'm just reminded the last two weeks we had 28 of them during spring break, on mission, in another country, these kids, these kids are serious about following Jesus. Let's help them take some next steps, all right? Thanks for doing that. Thanks for doing that. All right, let's go to work. If you are a Christian, I am about to confess something on behalf of all of us, you're welcome, all right? And I get it, when I say it, um, you're probably not gonna like it. I actually hope you don't like it, because if I'm confessing it, that's probably not a good thing, all right? But I think when you hear it, your response will be something like, yep, that's true. So here we go, my confession on behalf of all of us as Christians, We often resist the God we say we trust. Yep, that's true. We often resist the God we say we trust. He really is trustworthy. But sometimes it's just difficult. It's like forgiveness. I know. Jeff, you should should forgive. I know. 
I just don't know if I'm ready yet. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the, just the, the hurt this time is at such a level. I, I know that I should. I know. You shouldn't be in that relationship. I know. I know, but the, the, I, don't, I don't know if I'm ready to walk away from that. There's just there's something fascinating about that. I, I know that I should. I know. There's probably a better way to use your money. I know, but come on. I mean, there's some things that are just, I, that's really not your place to be deciding for me. And I, 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 I know, I know, because sometimes my heart tells me the truth. My conscience tells me the truth. The scriptures always tell me what's right, but I resist. I resist. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may also be saying, yep, that's true. That's what you all do. And on our end of the court, we got a word for that. It's called hypocrite. And I hear you. I hear you. I really do, loud and clear. Now, I'm asking you to at least realize that it really at times can be difficult to, in essence, sign a blank check of your life over to a God that I can't see with my physical eyes. And yet, the overwhelming evidence of his presence leaves me without excuse. And that's why I'm just admitting, it can be a battle. In the days leading up to Jesus' death, there are three individuals that intersect with Jesus, each of them having their own agenda, thus putting them at odds with Jesus. They resist. And what I want us to see is there is a little bit of them in all of us. The resist. There's a little bit of them in all of us. And what I want us to realize going in, their stories of resistance, I'm going to tell you one of them today, their stories of resistance illustrate the futility of resisting God. It's like, you really think this is going to work? Do you really think you can push back on God and this is going to work? Their stories of resistance illustrate clearly the futility of resisting God. But come on, here's where this applies to us. Our stories of resistance illustrate the futility of resisting God. And our kids can watch it. Our grandkids can watch it. Anybody who wants to watch can watch these illustrations of what it means to resist. So here we go. Here we go. Here's the first character. His name is Joseph Caiaphas. If you grew up in church, learning Bible stories, you simply know him as one name probably, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest about the time of Jesus' death. 
and resurrection. Now, this is the way I would describe Caiaphas to you. Caiaphas is the most powerful Jew in all of Israel. He's the most influential Jew in all of Israel. You see, Caiaphas was the connecting point between Israel, his people, and Rome, who had their thumb on their nation. And so he's the guy who has conversations with people like Pilate and whoever else was in Roman charge. But the best way for me to describe how powerful Caiaphas was is to describe to you how he's a part of a family that controlled the temple. For 40 years, either Caiaphas is the high priest, or his father-in-law is the high priest, or five of his brothers-in-law are the high priest. For 40 years, they're like a dynasty when it comes to the power and the control that are connected to the temple. Because you see, when you were the high priest, you had access to extraordinary wealth. And the reason was the temple tax. And the temple tax was something paid by Jews all over the world on a a, a yearly basis. They would send the temple tax back to the temple there in Jerusalem. Not just the Jews in Israel, but all over the world. And literally millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars would flood into the city to that little 32-acre plot of ground, the temple. So much money, so many resources were given that some of the governors of the Roman provinces around Israel tried to pass laws to keep the Jews from actually being able to pay such a tax. Caiaphas had great power, and Caiaphas had great wealth. Some of you are like, it'd be good to be Caiaphas. Doesn't sound like a bad gig to me. And it wasn't. Until a carpenter turned rabbi stepped on to the stage of history. His name? Jesus. He's kind of a big deal around here. And when Jesus stepped onto the stage, things quickly turned nightmare for Caiaphas. Nightmare for Caiaphas because with Jesus came crowds. Wherever Jesus was, crowd. Sometimes hundreds, the Bible describes, sometimes it was thousands. And the deal about crowds, they are a threat. Crowds are a threat to the Jewish system. Crowds are a threat to the Roman Empire because when it comes to crowds, it means there's possible rebellion. It means there can be division. What if the crowd turns against the system? It's a threat. But things were a nightmare for Caiaphas, not only because of the crowds, but also with Jesus came authority. And when Jesus spoke and Jesus acted, he did so with authority. 
like the time in the temple when he sent tables and money flying every direction. Remember that story? And I will remind you that when the authorities arrived who had been sent by Caiaphas, they did not ask Jesus, what do you think you're doing? They asked Jesus the question, who do you think you are? Because only somebody who thinks they got authority is going to respond in such a way. Only somebody in authority would have the power to, to do such a thing. He spoke and he acted with authority. It was a nightmare for Caiaphas. And then there was the criticism, which is typically not a word we often associate with Jesus, that with Jesus came criticism. But when it came to the religious authorities, Jesus brought criticism. Now, the criticism was, was really because of the corruption that they had brought to a system that was supposed to point people toward God, and instead, at times, it was literally stealing from them. And if you want to hear a Jesus rant, go to Matthew chapter 23, and I'm about to read just one verse of the rant. This is what Jesus had to say to the religious leaders, verse 23, Matthew chapter 23, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Did Jesus just do what I think he did? Yes, he did. He just looks the religious leaders in the eye. These are the guys who handle the sacrifices. These are the best people in the city. And Jesus says, you're going to hell. All right, that could fire a guy up, right? It did Caiaphas. And then came the final straw. I mean, there were the crowds, there was the authority, there was the criticism, but then came the final straw, which really wasn't something Jesus said. It was something that he did. It was actually an act of compassion. It was a resurrection. On the day that Jesus acted on behalf of a well-known citizen of the town of Bethany. His name was Lazarus. And Jesus stood in front of Lazarus' tomb, called him by name, said, come on out. And Lazarus came out after being dead four days. Now, come on. There's miracles, and then there's miracles. Are, are we right? I mean... Spit in the dirt, rub some, something on the guy's eyes and make him see. That's miraculous. But when you're having dinner with a dude that you attended his funeral, that's just a whole nother level, isn't it? The crowd swells. And Caiaphas realizes that the strategy, the strategy that they've been employing isn't 
working. What was the strategy? The strategy was to discredit Jesus. The strategy was, let's get him in a crowd, and then let's try to trick him. Let's try to ask him the questions. You know, all those times when they're asking him those weird questions that you think there's no, nobody could get out of this, and Jesus always gets out of it, right? They, they would try to ask him questions in the crowd, hoping that Jesus would say something that would divide him from the crowd, and then if the crowd went away, there is no more threat. And Caiaphas now knows that's not working. In the Gospel of John, we are given a detailed account of some of how all that goes down. And if you want to go there, I'm going to hang out in John for the rest of our time together. I want you to hear what John writes in chapter 12, verse 17. This is how he describes it. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. You think if you had been there and you watched Jesus call Lazarus out, you think you might tell somebody? Yeah, you tell people way less valuable stuff than that, right? You see a guy raised from the dead, you're going to spread the word. Social media is just going crazy, right? Everybody, word is spreading. Verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he had performed the signs, went out to meet him. So now we got bigger crowds, crowds telling crowds that are becoming bigger crowds. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Okay, what's this? This strategy. This strategy of trying to discredit him is getting us nowhere. This, this strategy of trying to trip him up and turn him against the crowds, it's getting us nowhere because the crowds are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. N look how the whole world has gone after him. I love that language. In their minds... On that day, it looked like the whole world was turning toward Jesus. I wonder what those guys would think about today. That I get it. I mean, our world's messed up. Our world is broken. But the fact is, there is still a third of our world's population that whether or not they actually have a relationship with him or not, I'm not sure, but a third of our world's population still declares Jesus to be a big deal. It's like, how does John learn all this stuff? How does he know all this stuff? How does he know what's going on behind the scenes? Well, Luke tells us in Acts that many priests and Pharisees ended up following Jesus after he arose from the dead. And so some of the people who are in these rooms, having these conversations, they, after Jesus rises, they will end up following him. And so Luke and John are able to sit down with these priests and Pharisees, and they fill them in on exactly what happened as they walked through these events. I want to back up to John chapter 11, and I want you to hear that story right after Lazarus is raised from the dead. This is what John says. John chapter 11, verse 47. Check it out. When the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, let's just stop right there. Chief priest, Pharisees, Sanhedrin. I want you to notice that's three different groups. They believe different things. 
They did not like each other because of the differences in what they believed. Like some of them believed in a resurrection, other of the dead. Others didn't believe in any resurrection, no, no, no life. So they believed totally different things. This would sort of be like the Democrats and the Republicans and the Supreme Court agreeing on something. It was that big a deal. And all three groups have converged. And the question is, what are we accomplishing here? This is not working. The crowds are growing bigger. Jesus seems to be more powerful. He continues in 47. Here is this man performing many signs, talking about Jesus. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then. Now, we read that and we go, well, if everybody believes in him, that's not a bad deal. It is if you're Caiaphas. It is if you're Caiaphas. Because and then. Then, then what? And I'm saying Caiaphas knew. There is something so important to Caiaphas. That to embrace Jesus means he would have to let go of it. And Caiaphas just believes that's too great of a cost. Something Caiaphas holds on to that means more to him than anything else. Power and wealth. Power and wealth. And Caiaphas knows for him, for him to embrace this Jesus is going to upset what matters most to him, what he holds most dear. I think he knew what he needed to do, but the cost was too much. This is how he declares it in the last part of verse 48. The Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation, our wealth and our power. I want you to understand today that when you decide to follow Jesus, I mean when Jesus is front and center, it costs you something. Always. And come on, we recognize it. It's like, if I... If I go to following Jesus, I mean, really following Jesus? I mean, Jeff, if, if I do what, what, what we sometimes read about here and I put him front and center, it's going to cost me my time. It's going to cost me my time. I mean, for one, I know that it's, it's, it's important that, that he says that we, we gather together, you know, to worship and be encouraged. And so I, that means that weekly I've got to spend some time worshiping with God's people. And so by the time we make the drive and the whole deal, it's like two hours, two hours every Sunday morning. 
two hours every Sunday morning. And then I know that if I'm going to follow him, I mean, the, the, his, his word, the Bible, really is critical to me, you know, being able to do that right. And so I should probably be involved in some kind of Bible study, which, which means like it's another hour, I would say at least, another hour of Bible study. Now we're up to three and then I, I know I should be involved in some kind of ministry. I know that my life is supposed to be given away. And so by the time I volunteer for something that's going to require a couple of more hours per week, that's, that's five. And then I know that, that God doesn't do this in isolation. I, I really should be connected to a, a team of people who can walk this out. And we really learn to help each other and trust each other. And so I, if I'm in a life team, that's seven. He's going to want my time. He's going to want like 4% of my week. I didn't just make that number up. That really was 4% of your week. And the bad news that I've got for you is he's not asking for four. He's one at all. And so to follow him does cost you something. It does. Let's just go there, Jeff. He's going to want my money. He's going to want my money. He, he's he's going to want me to take some of what I have and use it for what he cares about. He's going to want me to do that together through his church to see people in needs met. He's going to want me to live on less than what I want so that I can help other people who are in need. If I follow Jesus, it's going to cost me. If you're dating, <laughs> uh, if you're dating and you follow Jesus, all the stuff you can't do, I can, I can, I can only date Christians. Do you know how many hot Christian girls there are? Not. It's so goofy how people think, but we do. We know what to do. If a guy can raise people from the dead, we should follow him. But sometimes we declare the price too high. And we resist. What Caiaphas had made so important in his life, the thought of giving it up, he just couldn't do. Verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. So remember, all this crowd's gathered together. We got Sanhedrin, we got the, we got the Pharisees, we got the, the, the whole crew. You know nothing at all. <laughs> it's the way to start a meeting, right? Bunch of idiots. You know nothing. You do not realize that it is better for you. It's better for you, Sanhedrin. It's better for you, Pharisees. It's better for all of us wealthy, influential, powerful leaders. It's better for you that one man die 
Now it's getting serious. But for me, I think this is the moment that Caiaphas realizes kind of how he sounds here. And so the next words are, for the people. Right? Because this ain't about us. This is about for the people. Right? This is not about just us as leaders. This is not about our power and our wealth. This is, this is for the people. It'd be better that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. I mean, get rid of one guy and we, I, I mean, the people will be better off. And look at what John writes here, verse 51. John says he didn't say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Here's what happens. By the time John writes John, he's an old man. Many years have passed. He's writing as as he looks back. And you got to see this smile on his face. And he's saying, when Caiaphas said what he said, when, when they resisted Jesus, do you understand that they were actually facilitating the will of God? Because when they decided to put him to death, they were actually cooperating with the plan that God was putting in place all along. In other words, at the end of the day, your life will illustrate the futility of resisting God. He's still going to win. At the end of the day, you're created for his glory, not your glory. And so at the end of your life, it will be in line with his greatness. And so verse 53 says, so from that day, from that day on, they plotted to, what's the word? Take his life. I think John uses the word take here on purpose because he's already told us something a chapter earlier. John chapter 10, verse 17, this is what he heard Jesus say. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. You ready for this? No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. I I think of it this way. As parents, as parents, you know those moments when your kids suddenly plot their future because at the moment they're mad at you? You know what I'm talking about? You just did something that made them mad. You just did something to shut down something that they didn't want shut down. Or you, you, and, and they bow up on you and declare how they're going to plot out their future. And you look at them and kind of smile because you know they're nine. <laughs> they're nine. This ain't going to go very far. How much more ridiculous? How much more ridiculous are we? When we resist the God who breathed life into us and spoke everything in this world into existence, believing that somehow in our resistance we are going to overcome and get accomplished what we want. Caiaphas wants to take the life of Jesus, so from that day on they plotted to take his life. Now the key is he needs Rome He needs Rome to take Jesus out. But Rome 
will not execute a person just because Jewish law says execute a person. Rome's like, so what? And so Caiaphas needs a way to get Rome involved. Caiaphas needs a way for Rome to feel threatened. If the Roman Empire was threatened, then Rome would act. And Caiaphas finds it in one simple phrase. Jesus' self-declaration to be king. That's it. And so Caiaphas pushes the charges. Jesus declares to be a king. That is a threat to the Roman Empire. That's a threat to the Jewish system. That's a threat to everybody. Guilty. Crucified. Threat eliminated. Position secure. And then, just as the sun rose on the first day of the week after the Passover, there's a commotion outside of Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas hears the patter of steps as they come running down the hallway. His door swings open and someone says, Caiaphas, sir, the body of the Jewish rabbi that we crucified is missing. What do you mean, missing? And within hours, the sightings of Jesus would start all over the city. And within a few weeks, Jesus' followers would step front and center back into the city of Jerusalem and with bold declaration would say, you crucified him. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. You couldn't take his life. But years later, Caiaphas would lose his place. And years later, the Jews would lose the temple. As is always the case, those who resist the will of God become a footnote in the story. Jeff, that's a really cool story, but what does that have to do with me? It's because there's a little Caiaphas in you and me. There's a little Caiaphas in you and me that tends to ring from our lives, it goes something like this. Preserve at all cost. 
preserve at all costs. This is something that matters more to me than anything else in this world, okay? This is my reputation. Then you know what? Whatever I have to lie about to preserve it, I will. And whoever I have to walk over to make me look better, then I will. Or maybe it's a relationship. A relationship that I will fight for at all costs. I know I shouldn't be in it, but there is something fascinating about this. I will do whatever I have to do to keep it. Maybe it's a position. Maybe it is a GPA. You will cheat in order to keep it. And the words are declared, God, help me or get out of my way. Because this is what matters more to me than anything else in this world. And I'm reminding you that whatever this is, a relationship, a position, a GPA, a reputation, your happiness, whatever that thing is, is already diminishing in value and significance. I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you. The little gods always disappoint. Always. And the little gods eventually disappear. Whatever it is you hold on to that makes you resist to say, God, either you give me this or I'm not sure we need to talk anymore. I'm telling you, whatever it is you hold on to, those little gods always disappoint and they will eventually disappear. I can prove it to you. Some of our greatest regrets are our attempts to preserve something that's not even a part of our life anymore. You can look back on things that you, you went for that, you held on to that, other things were hurt because of it, you walked away from stuff you shouldn't have walked away from, and the thing that you held on to so tight isn't even a part of your life anymore. I'm telling you, the pressure to preserve the little gods will drive you to self-destructive behavior. God has a plan for your life, and anything else at the center will send you to self-destructive behavior, and in turn, it will hurt the people around you. I want you to think about something real quick before we wrap this up. Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest. He's the priest in charge of all the priests. The priest in charge of a nation. He is the leader. I mean, he has been given such responsibility. He has so many resources. Check this out. Caiaphas would have had access to the oldest existing copy of the law of God. Like, whoa, man. I mean, how cool would that have been to like see the oldest existing copy of God's law that said things like, thou shall not murder. But he did it anyway. Because our capacity for sin is extraordinary when we are trying to preserve something in the place of God. 
there's this part of me today that just prays. I know 20 of them are still gone, but it's like, man, if every high school student could hear me today, if every college student could hear me today, if there could really be an understanding in this room how how you can get this right at an early age and not hold on to little gods that are always going to disappoint you and eventually disappear. Some people go through 20, 30, 40 years of their life, some even more, and, and, and I would imagine there would be a resounding amen today from, from all those who got a few more years on you, but if you could just see how how so many of us wish we could go back and do this different, and you can do it right now. The little gods always disappoint, and the little gods eventually disappear. I understand that surrender is terrifying. It can be. But this is where I want you to land today. While saying yes to God will cost you something. Saying no will always cost you more. Including what you put in the place of God. I I am not trying to cover it. You follow Jesus, it costs but it costs you so much more to say no. Included whatever it is you think you're holding on to instead of God. So here's the question. What have you put in the place of God in your life? The thing that you say, God, if you were to take this away, I don't know if I can handle it. God, if, if, you, if you don't help me with this, then get out of the way. What, what is that You're going to spend so much time and so much energy and so much money trying to prop up your little gods that are eventually going to disappear. What is the little god you hold that's always demanding more and delivering less? That is the lesson from the life of Caiaphas, a man who attempted to resist And his story is a clear illustration of the futility of resisting God. Resistance leads to death. Surrender to a resurrection. God, There really is, there really is a seriousness to this matter, even for those of us who claim to follow, those of us who claim to believe. We have our way of, of using a little camo, um, we put on a, a little makeup and, and we cover We cover the fact that we really do have these things we hold on to that we know 
We know that turning to you means letting them go, and we struggle to do so. We resist. God, I'm asking that you would bring us within clear view this morning. God, don't let us hide. God, give us eyes that can see our heart like you see our heart. And I'm praying today that you would give us a faith, God, a willingness to let go. God, give us eyes that can see by now. Some of us have been at this a long time, and the little gods we've been holding on to, they don't deliver. They don't deliver. God, I'm asking you to help us to turn to you today. God, may this be a moment when, as your children, we confess those things to you. We open our hands to you. God, not to resist, but to let go. God, I'm praying for those who may be here today that they've never, never claimed to follow you, but the truth of the matter is they feel the same emptiness from chasing after. God, all the stuff of this life. I'm asking today that you would send our hearts running toward you. God, some of us aren't resting with you. Some of us are wrestling with you. Some of us are in the middle of some self-destructive behavior. Some of us are in the process of hurting a lot of people around us. God, would you give us wisdom to know what to do with the truth that we just heard? We declare that your name is victory. We declare that in surrender, there is resurrection. And God, I'm asking that on this day, many hearts could know what it means to experience a surrender, a forgiveness. God, a direction change of walking in the strength of you, our victorious one, who is constantly resurrecting us. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus, amen.